10-3 is brought to you by Callaway. Chrome Soft isn't just another tour ball, it's the golf ball that's changing how tour balls are made. When Callaway made a low compression, low spin tour ball, others said they might be onto something and tried doing the same. But they can't, because Chrome Soft is the only ball engineered with a graphene-infused dual soft fast core for serious speed and unbelievable control around the greens. See for yourself why everyone was playing and loving Chrome Soft. Order the ball that changed the ball at CallawayGolf.ca. Is humanity closer to unleashing the horror of the planet of the apes? That remains a nightmare scenario for the distant future, but genetic editing potentially takes us a small step closer. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We look at how scientists are adding human stem cells to the brains of monkeys, why they're actually doing this, and what potential ethical issues there are. Whether you're man or ape or monkey, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. Sharon Kirky covers health and medicine for the National Post. As medical technology has advanced, we've gotten to the point where we're able to edit our own genes, and there's talk of genetic editing as being a possible cure for some diseases. What are we talking about here? What diseases are we looking at potentially treating through this very complex process? Well, genetic editing is, uh, I mean, what people are probably have been reading about most recently is something called CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool. And the idea is to, one of two things, you can disable or delete genes that are believed to be associated with different diseases, or you can insert genes that are manipulated in some way to protect people from acquiring diseases. Most recently in the news, uh, Chinese scientists announced that they had created twin girls and they had been genetically edited, I'll just use that term, to be resistant to HIV. Um, and it was, you know, it was the very, the very first sort of human ap- application of this technology. Uh, it was very controversial because no one was quite aware that they were doing this. And actually it had led, you know, it's believed to be the first live birth using this gene editing tool. Certainly won't be the last. Um, so it, it's it's sort of this idea of, you know, people have used this phrase, what we're going to be creating are sort of designer children, you know, we'll edit genes, we'll find the genes, and we'll make these super smart, super beautiful <laughs> human beings. But, but in fact, you know, um, it's much more complicated than that. You know, there would be hundreds of genes, for example, involved in something like intelligence. And how could you possibly ever find and isolate all those genes and tweak them so that you had like, super intelligent baby. But it's certainly a promising technology in in that it has many applications and could potentially lead to effective therapies for, you know, some of the leading killers. So when you're talking about the idea of, you know, either making babies resistant to disease, which I, I mean, could be seen in many ways as a positive, or you're talking about making smarter babies or, or, uh, editing it so editing people's genetic makeup so they're taller or stronger. What is what's the ethical concern being raised about these practices? Well, I guess it's how far we want to go, or we're willing to go, or the science could take us in terms of what we determine is um, you know unattractive or or undesired genetic traits. 
So, and also who will have access to this technology? Will it only be available to the people who can afford it? Um, but I guess it's just determining, okay, what do we decide is something that's worth editing out? And what do we want to achieve? You know, what is it we're trying to achieve? Are we trying to eliminate, you know, reduce the risks of acquiring um, life-threatening illnesses? Or are we out to make sort of, you know, very smart, very bright, um, tall beautiful children. Um, so it's all about where we put our priorities, right, our, our, our priorities at a societal level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's still, f- you know, many, many years down the road, as I mentioned earlier, that there's still so many genes involved in specific traits that we may never, ever have the ability to um, drill down that, that, that deeply, you know, and to be able to select for um, these, you know, desired traits. But, you know, it does raise, raise questions about what we value in humans and, and our tolerance for things that are less than perfect. Now, like with a lot of medical uh, research and testing of, of new treatments, before we get to human trials, in a lot of cases, we see certain testing on animals. What kind of experiments have we already seen on things like mice or rats or even pigs and and beyond? Well, we've been using gene editing technologies for some time on animals and rats and mice in the rodent model. I mean, most of uh, biomedical science, medical science, has used sort of the rat and mouse and rodent model to study human disease for, for many years. And we've been inserting human cells even into the embryos, like the fertilized eggs of, of mice and rats for some time, you know, and it's led to better understanding of things like how human embryos develop. We've got human mice, um, chimeras they're called, so sort of hybrids that have helped us uh, in the study of AIDS and cancer and other diseases. Um, These are mice that, uh, because of gene editing, uh, have sort of human lymph nodes, maybe human livers, but everything else is mouse. Hmm. So it's just like a particular organ that might be human enriched. So we're we're already doing it. Uh, We've been doing it with trying to study the disease process in sort of organs. But now what's happening is we're turning to humanized brains. You know, if we can insert human cells into a rat or a mouse that might make them models for, say, pancreatic cancer. Now they're looking at, can we do the same to create animal models of diseases, brain diseases like Alzheimer's? And that's opening up a whole other sort of ethically tricky area. So when you're talking about altering the brains of an animal to make it more human-like. Obviously, if they're doing that with other organs, it's to make the function of it like a human, you know, if you're changing a liver to make it more like a human liver, I assume you're making it so it would function like a human liver so you can test it as you would a human liver. But when you talk about making the brains of animals more human-like, what does that mean? It's interesting. Uh, I mean, back... It's, it's complex, but back in April, for example, there was a story, uh, again, Chinese scientists doing something very radical. What they did was they implanted a human gene in saw, into uh, a monkey embryo. So it was a fertilized monkey egg, and it was a human brain gene, and that gene is crucial for human early human brain development. Hmm. And what they found was that these monkeys, there were 11, 11 of the embryos, you know, were implanted into sort of the, you know, the surrogate or the foster 
uh, monkey mom, and 11 of them survived. 11 of them were born, five of them survived, and, and as, as far as I know are still alive today. Um, and what they found, they wanted to use these monkeys as a way to sort of study, you know, this, this, this de brain development process. But in, what they found since then is, in fact, the monkeys appear to be a little smarter than their unaltered lab mates, you know, the monkeys that didn't get this human brain gene. And their reaction times are faster, and they're doing a little bit better on memory tests. So what that gets into is this whole issue of once we go into the central nervous system, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to... We're going to make, like you say, a, a human liver inside a mouse, or they're doing it in pigs now. Um, they've started to use these technologies to potentially grow human organs inside pigs for transplant. Um, the idea being that they could uh, use these gene editing tools to go into a pig embryo and delete the genetic coding for the pig pancreas, mm -hmm. and then insert insert human stem cells, stem cells that have the ability to change into anything we want them to change into, sort of inject those human stem cells into the pig embryo that have been programmed to turn into a pancreas. So what you then have is a pig with a human pancreas. That's one thing, but a pancreas doesn't feel, it doesn't have awareness, it doesn't have consciousness. Once we start dealing with using these technologies to sort of make humanized or, or making parts of an animal, in this case, a monkey brain, humanized, it really raises some tricky questions. You know, at, at what point does that monkey become less monkey and more human? Um, so this is what they're grappling with. I mean, it certainly, it hasn't been done, but this experiment in April shows that they're starting down this path. You know, they've implanted this human brain gene into the monkey. The monkey now has some human brain cells, we don't know what proportion of that monkey brain is actually human. Um, and these scientists, in fact, are now said to be looking at inserting genes that are help us with speech formation, which is kind of creepy, right? You're thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, the monkey might, was a monkey going to wake up one day and say, hey, what am I doing in this cage? But, you know, it, it it's, it's raises all sorts of questions around concern around the moral status of these, what we call chimeras, you know, these human-animal hybrids. And also, you know, we worry about an enhanced capacity for suffering once we've created these, these, these animals. Um, and just, you know, whether we should be going down this path. It's, as I said, it's one thing to be trying to use these technologies to create organs for transplant. It's another thing when you're dealing with a human, with, with elements of the, of the brain. Yeah. One term you've used, you just used was chimera. What does that word mean? I know it's not a scientific word necessarily. It's more a, kind of a mythological word, but kind of sum that up, that idea up for people. Yeah. So in Greek mythology, the chimera was like a monster, you know, part lion, part goat, part serpent. Um, it was a very mythical creature. In modern biomedical research, a chimera is a, basically a creature containing cells and even organs from another species. Mm -hmm. So with a monkey, uh, human chimera, for example, it would be what we've just been talking about using, using inserting uh, human stem cells, for example, into a monkey embryo 
And then, then you have two sets of DNA in this hybrid. One of the things that you, you mentioned in your reporting was that they're looking at potential cures for neurological conditions like Alzheimer's. To get there, would they have to first create a monkey-human chimera uh, with human-like brain function, but then introduce Alzheimer's into the mix as well to be able to understand how that disease tracks in a human brain and thereby create essentially trauma to the monkey? Yeah, it's one way they're looking at the Alzheimer's model. I mean, what they've done, what some teams have done so far uh, here in Canada, there's a team that has actually put um, molecules, this protein that's inside our brains that accumulates, that we all have, but if we get too much of it, it causes the plaques that form, that are believed to form uh, tangles that lead to Alzheimer's disease. It's a specific protein. What they've done is, in the cases in, in Canada, is that they've actually injected monkey brains with this human protein and then they're kind of studying what happens to those monkeys if we leave them alone. Some of them are sacrificed so that they can look at the tissue in the brain and see how the disease progressed. Others are left alone to see how they develop uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. People are also experimenting with taking brain tissue from people, humans who've recently died from Alzheimer's disease, the tissue itself, and injecting that into monkeys. And again, to see, to use that as sort of this model to see what happens in the monkey brain. What they're trying to do, what's more provocative, again, is this idea of creating, you know, this this whole new animal model of a monkey chimera where it actually has elements of a human brain. And then, as you said, manipulating it so that they, they try to trigger or provoke Alzheimer's or other, they could use this this model to study other neurological diseases like Parkinson's disease. And then use this, this sort of, this ideal, what, what, you know, people who are in favor of proceeding cautiously with this, they would say this was, this would be like the ideal surrogate, you know, the ideal model to study the progression of something like Alzheimer's, because we could, you could even like track it by marking the, you know, putting radio markers on it and, and imaging the animals as they're growing and to get a better look at their brains. We could use them to screen drugs, um, you know, much better than we can do now. Part of the problem with Alzheimer's, it's been, you know, billions have been invested into trying to find a cure for it or even effective treatments. And I think there may be two or three on the market. And the problem is that the model that they've been using until now is the rodent model, you know, mice and rats. And it, you know, a, a rat brain and a mouse brain is very different from a human brain, but mm-hmm. the, mon- the monkey brain isn't nearly so far removed from our own. So is that essentially, like, despite any ethical concerns around the idea of messing with an animal's central nervous system and their brain function, the question of why do it comes up. So is that the main reason to further research and potentially find a cure for something that's eluded us so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the great quotes I read was a guy, a bioethicist, Henry Greeley from Emory Center for Ethics, and he explained it this way, that question, why do this? And he said, the best way to look at a human brain and how it works and to study it is in a living human brain and a human being. But 
humans are like terrible lab animals, right? He says we disobey, we lie, we can call, we can call lawyers. <laughs> we can't, you know, researchers can't sacrifice us at the right moment in research and then really carefully look at pieces of our brain. And so we need a surrogate for a living human brain. And in, it's this reason why some people are saying perhaps we can go to the monkey model. And they, they think it's really a way to understand how the brain functions, how the disease process looks, um, and, you know, do this imaging to follow tissue formation. But again, it leaves people really, really uneasy for, for lots of reasons. And you can, under, you know, animal rights activists will say, this is, this is abhor- abhorrent, we shouldn't do this. Monkeys are highly social, highly complex animals, you know, if left alone in their own habitat, they form large families and large groups. Um, and that, you know, they're close enough to us already that we'll, if they're so close to us, why do we need them to be studying something like Alzheimer's? Why don't we just still study human beings? You know, mm-hmm. is sort of the, the logic is, is a little fractured, people argue, you know. Um, do we, and, and, and any time you cross that sort of into the central nervous system, it leaves all sorts of questions, right? You know, at what point, you know, the, I lead, spoke earlier, at what point does the monkey perhaps develop, you know, require the same moral status that humans do? And at what point is there a risk that they are developing some kind of human awareness? And how do you even test it? Um, How do you look for it? You know, how do you stop the experiment when you see that they are gaining some kind of human-like consciousness? Um, You know, do we wait for the monkey to start speaking? I don't mean to be so glib, but it's it's really a tough thing. At what point, what measures do you use to to, to say, "Oops, you, this is going too far, and we need to stop" because we're seeing signs of, you know, who knows what. Um, so I guess there, there's a lot of concern about that. For some, crossing into the central nervous system, the brain is a place we absolutely should not be going. What if you get to the point where? the monkey is disobedient or lies or, you know, develops those kind of human characteristics. Like, it may sound far-fetched, but at the same time, does it does it feel like we're getting to this point where we're crossing a really kind of frightening plane in scientific research? I think so. You know, the... It, it, it's not been proven that this can even be done yet. There's so many, so many hurdles to overcome. You know, even a lot of this hinges on human stem cells being able to survive inside um, a monkey model. And those stem cells are those kind of magical cells that can turn into what we hope or program to do them to do. And the other question, you know, the other thing that's often raised in this debate is what they call the contribution level, right? So what proportion of cells from species A, meaning humans, um, goes into the monkey or into the monkey chimera, you know? So the Chinese experiment that was reported in August, in April, they said it was like only 1% of cells um, came from the human in this in these monkeys that are now still alive. Well, okay, 1% of all cells of the entire animal, okay, people have said that's that's cool, you know, it's going to look like a monkey and act like a monkey. But if it's 1% of all cells in one portion of the brain, for example, the hippocampus, um, 
that's kind of creepy. That's kind of, well, that's a, that's a big proportion. And there is a risk that that human enriched brain may lead to some human awareness or cognition. And your point is valid. So then what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how do we watch for that? And who's, and also the bigger question too is who's going to control them and who's going to decide how far we go with this? I mean, we have, you know, in the US, there are strict controls against making these kinds of chimeras. They don't qualify for any federal funding. Uh, the situation would be the same here, but they certainly can qualify for private funding. And then you have countries like China where the regulations, those guys are cowboys, like the regulations around medical research are wanting, to say the least. So this science is progressing. And, and the researchers that I spoke to for this piece who've sort of created this, what's kind of the first guidebook for the scientific community on chimeras and and the ethical questions that you and I have been talking about and the science questions, you know, how we, how can we even do this uh, from a scientific and, and uh, theoretical level? You know, they're concerned as well. They're saying it's time that, even though it seems so far-fetched, it's already starting. And if we don't have these discussions as, as scientists, as the public, on what we're willing and prepared to do and what things need to be in place, what what type of things need to be in place to make sure that the science isn't abused. I mean, we're going to end up with these experiment, you know, announcements that come out of the blue, like the first CRISPR babies, um, and, and it's going to be just, you know, a, a free-for-all. Well, it is definitely a fascinating uh, subject, also kind of scary, too, a little bit when you think about it. Uh, Sharon, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Like what you heard today? Get more of the National Post's award-winning journalism complimentary for 30 days at nationalpost.com slash podcast. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Production assistance this episode from Stuart Thompson. Special thanks to my guest Sharon Kirkey. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.